Our reading today is titled Earthside, written by Emily Kadar. We are asked to arrive here, Earthside, to occupy every inch of the body we're given to learn its language, its needs, and gifts. We are asked to use it as a compass to harbor us in safety and lead us through the wild. We are asked to care for this place with the grit and grace of dirt on our hands. We are asked to speak, to give voice to the voiceless and translate light to language, to cast the, wildest, the widest net, to include everything inside of it, to crack the heart wide open and never close it again. When we are pulled apart by longing, we're asked to keep showing up, to follow this soft, insistent tether, to become what we love, to pour ourselves into the hands of our ancestors, to be held by them like water, to quench the mouths of our children, to nourish them with who we become. We are asked to belong, finally. Belong to ourselves, to each other, to the land, to our own shape-shifting shadows, to our own threadbare, indelible light. We are asked to belong to the old tales that brought us here and to the new ones that will keep us alive. We are asked to belong to the great turning wave of this time and this place. We are asked to punctuate our breath with both sorrow and praise. We are asked to answer by becoming again and again the way. Thank you, Janelle. As we occupy our bodies, let us start taking a breath together. And let us connect with our senses. Look around you and see your screen, but also what, what is in the room? What colors do you see? What people, what plants, what views out the window perhaps? Look behind yourself. Even if you can see through the zoom what's behind you, it's good to turn your neck as much as you can and locate yourself in your space. Now, what do you hear? The sound of my voice. What else can you hear? Perhaps someone talking in another room or on another Zoom in another room, maybe traffic going by, a dog barking, pitter-patter of little feet. What are the sounds in your space? And what, what do you smell? Maybe breakfast or coffee or tea, maybe a bouquet of flowers, or maybe a wet dog. <laughs> what are the smells of your place? What do you taste? Maybe, maybe it's that coffee or just some water. 
reminder in your mouth of whatever you had for breakfast. And finally, what do you touch? Feel your clothes on your body, your body and your seat. Any tension or aches inside of your body. Any places of looseness. Now with our attention returned to our body, let us take another few breaths in silence together. Now I invite you to bring your attention back to my words as I begin my sermon this morning. The yellow jackets hovered around the table where my fellow herbalism apprentices and I were making tinctures and drinking tea. A few feet away on the ground was a plate with cut up apples and honey. Go over there to your food. We said gently, trying to shoo the yellow jackets away. They weren't listening. Jessica, the herbalist, sighed a resigned yet kindly sigh. Oh, I guess I'll just go get them some fresh food, she said, and went into the house, returning a few minutes later with another plate of chopped up fruit and honey, this one fresh, unlike the other that was left from the day before. Look, we told the yellow jackets, over there. That's the stuff you want. Not this alcohol and chopped up herbs, not this unsweetened tea. Eventually, the yellow jackets began to make their way to the plate, climbing all over the fruit, licking up the sweetness. Occasionally, one would still come by and see what we were up to, hoping that maybe we were involved in something even more delicious. But for the most part, they left us alone. A bit later, I noticed a yellow jacket that was very interested in the work I was then doing, straining roses from honey. As it flew around my workstation, curious but not aggressive, I asked aloud, why do we teach our children to be afraid of them? In my experience with yellow jackets, bees, and wasps, while they may harass you for whatever goody they think you have or because you're in their on top of their nest. They're much more likely to cause harm if you're trying to shoo them away by flapping at them. Stinging is a defense mechanism, not an aggressive decision for these beings with whom we are in relationship. Yet how we treat them determines much of the shape of that relationship. How any one of us might treat them also helps set the stage for the relations with others around us as demonstrated by the herbalist's hospitality for the yellow jackets, which invited all who were visited into peaceful relationship with them rather than fear. To be sure, some people do have severe allergic reactions to the stings of such beings. And regardless, they can cause considerable pain and discomfort. So it is good to be prepared and to avoid being stung. It is wise to be cautious of them. But what if instead of presenting these wasps as pests to be avoided, and if necessary, exterminated, we see them 
as other living beings just looking for a good meal and who deserve our respect and dignity? What if we feed them, make friends with them, sing to them, converse with them? How does that transform our relationship as we experience it and as they experience it? How does that allow us to live in the world experiencing more peace and safety? How does that enrich our lives? Because now we have more friends. When we are alone or tired or just need to know if someone cares, we notice the little yellow jackets swarming by. Not because they want to attack us, but because they think we are sweet and wonderful and enjoy our company. That kind of thinking, could it revolutionize everything? As I reflect on this transformative encounter with yellow jackets, I'm reminded of some pigs that I befriended on a farm where I worked. The pigs lived for a while in a pasture beside some gardens that I tended. Every time I was weeding, which was often, I would throw my weeds over the fence to them. But as spring turned to summer and it grew hot in central Arkansas, it turned out there wasn't sufficient shade in that pasture for the pigs. We realized this after they repeatedly broke through the electric fence, deciding that the temporary pain was worth it in order to find shade underneath the house that was on the other side of the garden. Each time I heard, the pigs are out, I thought, well, there goes my garden. But here's the thing, those pigs who wandered freely on my side of the fence for a few days never took a single step in a garden bed. It's as though they knew, as though the relationship of care and connection, excuse me while I find my place again. It's as though they knew, as though the relationship of care and connection established by me feeding them from the garden created a pact between us. They did what they needed to take care of themselves and were able to do it in a way that didn't cause harm to anyone else. I was sad when after a few days as free range pigs, they were rounded up and brought to a different pasture with sufficient shade, but far from the gardens where I spent my time and thus no longer such ready companions for me. These interactions resonate with the premise of white eco-philosopher Derek Jensen's book, A Language Older Than Words. Jensen's book is inspired by his experience addressing the coyotes that were decimating his flock of chickens, directly asking them, please don't eat the chickens. If you don't, I will give you the head, feet, and guts whenever I kill one. After that, the coyotes left his birds alone. Jensen began to reflect on his own and others' experiences of interspecies communication. He began to wonder about the culture of violence that leads to the forgetting of that language. By paying attention to his own experience, opening himself up to the fact that he might not be crazy for thinking he could communicate with animals, Jensen began to confront the pain of his own life experiences and to accept the blessings that come from having relationships of respect and reciprocity with the universe. Jensen's evolving ecological understanding that comes from such encounters 
reminds me of indigenous botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer's exploration of the relationship between humans and plants in her powerful book, Braiding Sweetgrass. Kimmerer writes, it is not the land that has been broken, but our relationship to it. As she explores indigenous traditions of reciprocity with the natural world and offers a hopeful vision for repairing those broken relationships through intimacy and use. Both Jensen and Kimmerer challenge the culture that has led humans to forget our place of belonging in the universe. And both invite us to see these experiences of communication, not just as metaphors, but as experiences of the world to be considered on their own terms. It is tempting to look for metaphor in my story about the yellow jackets. We are meaning-making beings, and there is a maybe a great message inspired by this story. But I leave that for you and your imagination, and maybe another day. Today, why look for the analogy when there is a reality right in front of us, rich in literal meaning? Jensen talks about a conversation he had with Okanagan teacher and philosopher Jeanette Armstrong discussing his experience with the coyotes. She tells him, attitudes about interspecies communication are the primary difference between Western and indigenous philosophies. Even the most progressive Western philosophers still generally believe that listening to the land is a metaphor. She continued, it's not a metaphor, it's how the world is. As valuable as metaphors are, there is a violence, a distancing that enters our lives when we experience the world around us as more as symbol than reality. When we experience nature as something outside of ourselves that we can retreat to rather than a seamless fabric of which we are an inseparable part. That separation that allows us to see tiny yellow jackets as antagonists is part of the legacy of settler colonialism, the kind of thinking that sees land as something to be owned and justifies the genocide of other humans. As Jensen reflects on the ease and belonging that have come into parts of his life as he has allowed himself to communicate with animals and plants and to listen, Armstrong concludes, yeah, that's what we've been trying to tell you for the past 500 years. For the past 50 years or so, the environmental movement in the United States has sought wisdom from indigenous American cultures, building off the stereotype of the ecological Indian. The myth is alive and well to this day. I often encounter people drawn to Native American traditions in a search for answers believing that indigenous cultures are innately more in touch with the realm we call nature, and that by adopting their practices, we, white folks usually, but not exclusively, will be able to heal ourselves and the planet. While indigenous cultures with their long history in this place do hold valuable wisdom, I find this approach to be a little misguided and appropriative. In an essay published in UU World Magazine last March, indigenous author Dina Gillio Whitaker reflects on this tension. She notes, 
The problem was not so much that hippies looked to Indian country for answers. It was that as settlers, they unconsciously brought with them worldviews and behavior patterns that were inconsistent with indigenous paradigms and tried to fit indigenous worldviews and practices into their own cognitive frameworks. One particular issue was that non-natives didn't understand that the function of indigenous ceremonies was primarily for the perpetuation of particular communities, not personal enlightenment. Like the pilgrims who learned from the local natives how to grow corn, a practice that fit within their existing agrarian worldview. Many descendants of settlers would readily take what would fill them up, a ritual or a peaceful forest preserve, and not consider the factors that made that temporary fulfillment possible or the reciprocity upon which it depends. Too often any of us may fail to open ourselves up to how we might have to change to be at home in this landscape, to really consider that our humanity is the same as that of the venerated shaman and that we are all a part of our ecosystems and they are a part of us. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, not just with other humans, as Dr. King famously reminded us, but also with the rocks and the trees, with the soil and the bees. The European explorers and settlers largely failed to recognize the impact of the indigenous people on the landscape, failed to recognize the nature of cultures inextricably tied to place. The belief that the Europeans encountered a pristine wilderness, untamed and untrammeled, was the notion I learned in school, and it continued to persist. One of the justifications for colonization was that the native peoples weren't taking advantage of the abundance of resources God had provided. Yet, what many failed to recognize was what funded earth, but what we might call land management, or as I'd prefer to call it, co-creation and interdependence. What most Europeans and their descendants lacked, perhaps because they had killed their witches, was the ability to see the potential for human planetary partnership Considering their limited views on the role of women as partners, this should come as no surprise. And in so many ways, that mindset has not changed. White supremacy and settler colonialism, as I understand them, are responses to trauma endured in Europe, examples of those who had been hurt paying that hurt forward. Just a quick look at the history of medieval Europe shows us the harm that people we would now call white did to others who we would now call white. The killing of those accused of witchcraft caused one of many breaks within European traditions to the wisdom of knowing the magic that comes through the land that we can channel through us within the understanding and cooperation and knowledge. That wisdom can be abused and used for one, what one might call evil but it is also a source of love, 
joy, healing, and connection. One with great power and thus threatening to the status quo. The loss of that knowledge, whether through execution or forced migration, whether through knowingly leaving something behind or hopefully running towards something else, whether through murder or distance, that loss makes it all the harder for those of us who are non-Native Americans to root in authentic historical land relationships on this continent. And yet the memories and knowledge that we belong to the earth live within our DNA, manifest in our bones, the connection to be felt in the milking of a cow, by hands put in dirt planting seeds, by learning to hear the voices of the plants and animals, the hills of our ecosystems. Jessica, the herbalist I studied with, like me, a white woman of Jewish descent, starts her sacred guy in herbalism apprenticeship, not by demanding that we memorize details about the medicinal uses of different plants or the meanings of words like holagog or emetic, which describe some of their uses. We discuss those words, we're exposed to them, but the introduction starts with connecting to body, to place, to ancestors, to plants, to honoring those intuitive skills that have been suppressed in our culture, in our world. Learning to talk to the plants and make offerings to them. Upon coming on a patch of say, wintergreen, asking, may I harvest you? Accepting the no. Later encountering another patch and feeling that yes, it's not a word, but sense. Some of it might come through from incorporating through our other sense perceptions that there they are sparse and here they are numerous, but it's not just that, something deeper, something captured in this morning's story, something I believe is in each of us, this possibility of connecting and of feeling more human and more whole the capability to connect, to communicate with stars and coyotes, with pigs and with plants. I believe it is innate in each of us, an aspect of our inherent worth and dignity within this interdependent web of which we are a part. The most natural thing in the world, as Bird Baylor puts it. Indigenous wisdom, a book like Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, may be a map to get us started, but the reality it points to exists in the land and its creatures, humans included, in relationships. The word human shares the same root with the word humus, the organic matter in soil. In Hebrew, the word adam, man, human, comes from the word adamah, earth. We are people of the soil, people of dust and breath, and our lives, our future, and the future of others, be they yellow jackets, pigs, sweetgrass, or our human kin, full of other colors, other genders, other abilities, all of these relationships become more possible, more delightful, still challenging. When we recognize that we are connected, that we are in this life together, and that it is possible for love to be reciprocal, that reciprocity can move through all our relationships. 
With this sense of reciprocity, we might begin the cultural transformation upon which our future on this planet depends. Robin Wall Kimmerer writes, knowing that you love the earth changes you, activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. May we all experience that bond of love and may it guide us into a world of safety, connection, and liberation for all.